Well, while I'm getting set up, if you want to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 7, you will be in the same chapter that I'm going to be in. If you're new to New Hope and um, you don't happen to own a Bible, the Bibles that you see in the pew racks in front of you are there for your benefit, but also we would love for you to take one of those with you when you leave today. If you'd like to own a copy of God's Word, you'd like to have a Bible in your own home, those Bibles are there for you, so don't hesitate to take one with you when you leave this morning, and that will help you uh, have something to read specifically. If you're looking for advice about what to read first, perhaps you're not familiar with God's Word, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service, give you an idea of where you could start at. Let's get caught up briefly on uh, where we're at in this process of studying the book of Revelation, especially as we look are looking forward into the future, looking at the end times. Today, we're still in Revelation chapter 7. That's where we were at last week. And we took on the sealing of the 144,000 Jews and what that meant. But at this point in the tribulation where we're at, Antichrist, the one with the mark of the beast, the 666, the symbol of Satan, is in control of planet Earth. At this point in time, he rules over the United States, he rules over Europe, he rules over China, he rules over Russia. Politically, he's in great power. As you've learned up till this point, there are things happening on the planet, geophysically, that are shaking the earth to its core. Massive earthquakes. The earthquakes that we're experiencing here in our time are just mild trembles compared to what Scripture speaks about are coming as the end times ramp up and they become more and more pronounced. So we see earthquakes shuddering the earth. There's war, famine, plagues, disease. People are dying left and right. And there is economic chaos. And in the midst of this, we find from last week that at the beginning of the tribulation, God set apart this group of 144,000 witnesses, what's known as a witness nation, those who are sealed and sent apart to talk about God throughout the midst of the seven years. So God has sealed this witness nation, 144,000, set them apart. They cannot be killed by the demons. They cannot be touched by Satan. Physically, they're protected. Spiritually, they're protected because they've trusted in Jesus Christ. But we're told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 that this is a period of time in which believers, people who look just like you, will be arrested, put on trial, and pronounced necessary of death. Why? Because they refuse to worship the beast, the one with 666, the Antichrist, who to the world will be incredibly attractive very intelligent, physically appealing to people, someone who's got it all together, and politically, a brilliant mind. So the world will say, why wouldn't you honor this guy? But Christians will recognize who he is. Now studying this material, I realize is, uh, this is the warning I gave you in the first week, we don't want to neglect becoming wonders and worshipers at the expense of becoming academics. It's very easy as we study this text to take in the academia side of it and say, wow, this is really fascinating, the structure of this, but neglect what's going on in the bigger picture, that it's necessary for us to be wonders and worshipers. At this point, I feel it necessary to remind you, as we're studying 
the horrors of earth and the things that take place in the seven years, don't forget, we win, okay? I've read the end of the story. It comes out pretty good, all right? You can read the end yourself, chapter 22. It's a powerful ending, but it takes a bit to get there. Every time I've ever been to a funeral, I've heard someone read a particular passage of Scripture which I have a new appreciation for now after studying what I have in the last few weeks leading up to this particular Sunday. Perhaps you will too after you see this particular verse I'm going to show you and how it fits into this text. Look up on the screen with me at 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. This is what Paul wrote specifically to the Corinthian church. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Scripture says you have never seen what you're going to see in eternity. Your ear has never heard the kind of music that you're going to hear in eternity. Your mind cannot imagine and I can imagine some pretty amazing things. But Scripture says, <laughs> you got nothing on this. You can't even begin to imagine. I think you're going to look at that text in a new way this morning after we go through this passage in Revelation chapter 7 with a new appreciation for what God wants to show us. Because many times when we think of the things that we can't see, hear, or imagine, we think of, well, yeah, streets of gold and pearly gates and rivers and fruit trees and there's more going on here than that, okay? So we want to set our mind straight and keep that in the back of our mind as we move forward in here. We discovered last week that in the midst of the tribulation, God is going to put salvation on display. The first thing he's going to do is set apart this 144,000 witnesses you learned about last week and seal them and protect them. So he puts on salvation on display right there. Why does that have to happen? Why does he have to seal them? I read to you from Thessalonians a couple weeks ago. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. We discovered that one that restrains is the Holy Spirit. He's holding back the sin of Satan, the, the way that Satan wants to pounce on the earth. He's holding it back. But there's a time when he's going to be taken away. The restraint is going to be let off and the man of lawlessness will step in. So this restraining influence at this period, period of time is being removed, and that's when Satan's demons begin to wreak havoc upon the earth. In the midst of this seven-year tribulation, they're let loose, and they bring just terrible things upon the planet, and it's a time of unparalleled wickedness. Antichrist, interestingly, has this worldwide reign of terror going on, at the same time, God's dumping out all the judgments on the earth. So you have Satan working his plan and God, with the bigger picture, bringing about judgment upon the earth to turn men back to him. So that's what's going on. And in the midst of all this time of horror, God's displaying mercy and bringing men back to himself in a way that's been previously totally unknown. Would you say that today it's easy to profess Christ? Relatively easy, isn't it? It's not that hard. I mean, it's not like there's people out there waiting to take you out 
It's not that hard to profess Christ and come to church and dress up and sing songs. We can sing as loud as we want. Hello! You know, there's nobody out there in the parking lot. Okay, we can do whatever we want. It's not that hard. That will not be the case in the end times. It will cost them something. You imagine leaving here today, say you want to go to Olive Garden for lunch. You go in the door and the receptionist at the door says, before I can seat you, will you show me your mark? Um, you know, the one that's supposed to be on your right hand or on your forehead. That's what happens in the end time, Scripture says. You can't go to the banks, you can't go to the grocery stores, you can't go to the gas station unless you have the mark of the beast upon you. So it costs something to be a follower of Jesus Christ at this time. There's havoc going upon the earth. So God's going to have two forms of carrying out his salvation method during this period of time. Look at these two forms with me. It will be a time of Israel's national salvation. Israel will be turning back to God and many will be becoming Christians according to Scripture. And the second one is, it's going to be a time of worldwide evangelism and repentance on a scale previously not known. Last week, when we jumped into Revelation chapter 7, I started out with the Abrahamic covenant. You remember that? And way back in Genesis, God said, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. I didn't show you the whole verse at that time. I want to show you that verse up on the screen right now. And this is what it says, way back in Genesis. Genesis 12:1. And I will make you a great nation. This is God speaking to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. This is where we stopped last week, but this is the last part of it. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God, from the very beginning, chose Israel to be his channel through which salvation would come to the planet. Through Jesus Christ, and now we're going to see in the end times, through the work of these 144,000 that are roaming the earth as powerful witnesses for God. So let's pick it up here in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. This is what John writes. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. After what things? After these things. After what he just saw that we learned about last week, a whole new vision. After these things, he saw the 144,000, and now he sees, I looked, and wow! Remember that word, behold, I do? I-D-O-O-U, that's the word behold? Wow! Okay, so if you're a high schooler today, you'd be saying, dude, amazing! Wow! We don't have enough vernacular in the English language to be able to express what's going on here, but John is shocked. I looked, and I'm amazed! Why? I think there's two reasons going on. First is, John wrote the letters to the seven churches. Remember, that wasn't very pretty. Those letters that he wrote that Jesus said, here's what I have to say to the churches, it didn't look good. It didn't look like the church was prospering. And yet, John sees this incredible multitude of believers who are obviously a result of the work of the church and the witnesses. So, this thing about Jesus has grown to such a degree that John's shocked, but he says, a great multitude which no one could count. I've experienced 
seeing large multitudes. We saw when President Obama was inaugurated, they estimated somewhere around two million people stood in the square there watching that. They think that might have been the largest gathering ever in the history of the world. John said when he saw the angels before the throne that there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So we're saying John saw a solid number of billions of angels, yet here he says, I can't even count them. There are so many that no one can count them. Now we know that they're a very distinct group from the 144,000 because he says something specific. He says they're from many nations, many tongues, many people groups. You remember back when I said in two weeks ago in Revelation chapter six, after that massive earthquake, that the cry that went out from the earth was from the people who were being crushed saying, who is able to stand? The wrath of the lamb is being revealed. And who is able to stand? That word stand is histame. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You see that same word popping up and the answer to the question when they said after the earthquake, who is able to stand is right here in this next verse. Look at this. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing, histame, before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, a multinational group. As we're sitting here this morning, Larry Conover is over in Africa in Zambia meeting with a group of followers of Jesus Christ. They'll be at the throne with these individuals, as will you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Chinese, Russians, Eskimos, Brazilians, Filipinos. That's what John's seeing. They're from not only every nation, there's every tongue here, every people group. Now you can see why he's saying, wow, this is amazing. They stand before the throne and before the lamb. This word stand, histame, means more than just like standing in line. You just stood in line as you walk up to the table to receive the Lord's table, to receive communion. It's not talking about that kind of stand. It's talking about one who is worthy to be presented before royalty. They are standing before the king of kings and they can be there. The literal definition for it, histame, is to abide, continue, present. So they are presenting themselves. That's the standing this is talking about. They're standing as overcomers. Do you remember when Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will clothe in white robes? Right here, that's what's going on. He who histamates before the king of kings, I'll clothe them in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. I want you to really get this down with these white robes because we're told that everyone who belongs to Jesus is gonna get this article of clothing. The first word that's used here is parabolo when it says clothing, and it means this, to wrap up, completely shroud around, but there's a unique way in which it's used. When a king was to put on his royal robes, he was considered to be arrayed to parabolo in his robes. They were wrapped around him. So that's what's going on here with this word clothed. They're clothed, they're arrayed in this very specific word. Look on the screen at the definition for a white robe. Lucos, it's the word Luke, the name Luke. And it literally means to be dazzling, brilliant, shining. If you got the name Luke, you got a great name, okay? I am brilliant. 
I'm not only brilliant, I'm dazzling. Okay? That's very cool. Lucas. So John sees this multitude from every nation, every people group, every tongue, and it's massive. And they're in these brilliant white robes that they're arrayed in and they're presenting themselves before the king of kings. No wonder he's saying, wow! Now, no doubt, some of this group is martyred individuals. They're the ones who he saw earlier in chapter 6 that we read about who had been killed for the name of Christ. Others have died of natural reasons. And some have died because of the, the earthquakes and the plagues upon the planet. But there's this multinational group. As the tribulation wears on, the numbers of martyrs will increase and magnify. But I'll show you that in just a minute. They have something specific in their hand. It says they have palm branches in their hands. Whenever I think of palm branches in individuals' hands, I've never really associated palm branches with heaven before. Palm trees lining the streets, not sure. Or is this figurative? But what it takes me back to is the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and all those who followed him broke off palm branches and they're waving them. Why do they do that? Just like we wave a flag on the 4th of July, they wave palm branches to celebrate. It's a victory. So they're celebrating the one who's riding in with victory. So they're, ride, they're wearing these palm branches and waving them. If you actually go to some of the Jewish museums today and you find coins that are on display, you'll see on the coins, if you flip them over on the back side, palm branches. It was for the salvation of Israel. So that's why you see them when Jesus rode into Jerusalem waving the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, salvation to us! As they thought he was coming to conquer Rome. So here we see people in heaven doing the exact same thing that the Jews did 2,000 years ago, exalting Jesus and waving these palm branches. That's what John is picturing here. Now look with me at four things that John sees because specifically he doesn't know who these people are. He doesn't know who they are. We'll find that later. But he writes something specific about him. They're accepted. They stand right before God's throne. Remember, they've just been rejected on earth. If they didn't follow Antichrist and worship him, they were killed. So these are people who were accepted. They stand before God's throne. They're joyful. They're singing praises to God. They're just full of exuberance. They've been rewarded. They've got these robes that they're wearing. And they're very emotional. How do I know that? Look at the next verse, verse 10. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you take just that first section there, and they cry out with a loud voice, I see emotion, I see intellect, I see awareness. They're conscious of everything that's been done for them. And so they're overwhelmed with this and they find themselves standing before the throne of God. Now think about this. They're dead moments before if they're martyrs. They're alive just before that on earth, being sentenced to death. And something happened, and they're killed. And John sees them standing before the throne. And so no longer on planet earth, but they're standing before the throne of God. You learned just a few weeks ago about the lightning, the flashes, the peals of thunder emanating from the throne. And here these individuals are standing in the presence of God. And so they break into a reaction. 
They break into loud praise. Did you know that God likes loud worship? Worship people love this part of it, okay? My friend Keith Nelson, my son Derek who drums, they get into this part because God emphasizes, I like you to worship me loudly. Look at Psalms 100 through new eyes. Psalm 100 says this, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Have you ever been to a child's birthday party? Okay, get Chuck E. Cheese in your mind, all right? Is it quiet when you go in there? No, the kids are busting loose. Now the parents are saying, shh. The kids are going, you're crazy. <laughs> this is when we can cut loose. That's what's going on. This word that's used here, shout joyfully to the Lord, it means to be gleeful, to be just busting out with joy. So when you sing before God, you sing fully. So when the drummer plays and plays well, he plays loudly. And when Michael pounds on the piano, he pounds well, okay? I can't do that. So we have other people do that and we join them and we lift up the rafters because scripture says God likes loud worship. He likes us to proclaim his name. And what is worship about? It's always about salvation. Look at this, salvation is the focus of the worship. Let me show you these two very interesting words that are used. The first word is the word that's used by these individuals when they're in eternity. So when they say salvation to our God, it doesn't mean they're giving God salvation. I want you to see the definition for this. Soteria, this is what salvation is defined as in scripture in the New Testament in this context. Rescue, safety, physically or morally, deliver, deliverance, health, preservation. That sounds like a health care plan you can use, all right? That's God's plan, soteria. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel using the word soterion. Look at the definition for that. Soterion means to be a defender or defense. So when the people of Israel were calling out for God to defend them, to bring them soterion, they wanted a defender for their nation. These individuals who are in eternity, they're looking back and saying, Soteria, you've given us health, preservation, protection. The defense is past tense. They're in present tense. You are Soteria. So they exalt God for his salvation, not for what they've done, not their own accomplishments. Their accomplishments didn't get them before the throne. It's God's Soteria. So very interestingly, when the angels hear this, they have a response. They're listening in to what these individuals are saying. So look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. This countless number that John saw is not alone now in the thunderous worship that's taking place. This tells me that angels respond to worship. That makes sense, they were created for worship. And so they're responding to worship. They hear these individuals proclaim salvation. And so they're responding. Now think what you've learned so far. The throne in the center. The four creatures roaming around the throne. The 24 elders set up on thrones around them. This mass of people 
that John can't even count. And the angels encircle them all. And they just drop on the ground and prostrate themselves right before the throne. The crescendo that you saw back in chapter four is now kicking in again. What started with the quartet and moved out to the ensemble and then joined the angels, now you see the individuals who have been redeemed joining in. I had just a, a kind of a, a free-for-all for you, a free aside. Did you know that angels are very curious about salvation? Because they've never experienced it. They've never had to be saved. So scripture tells us, according to what was written in 1 Peter, that they long to look into it. Look at this in 1 Peter 1.12. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So though angels don't experience salvation, they long to look into it, but they have no problem celebrating when one comes to Christ. Look at this passage from Luke 15.10. In the same way I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That word joy is kara. And it just means to be gleeful, just full of hilarious laughter. They're celebrating that people come to God, that they turn back to him. So you notice that the subject of redemption is missing when angels give praise to God because they've never experienced it. But they join them in worshiping. And they assert seven things specifically about God and about the Lamb. Look at this next verse, verse 12. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. You remember Michael just had this on the screen when you were doing worship. And he said, say it louder, say it louder. Why? Because the angels are saying this. When they say amen, it's true. It's true. That's what amen means. So they're bookmarking it. They're saying true, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. It's true. This isn't just a casual saying. They're emphasizing it and stamping it because they've got complete knowledge. They're watching what goes on. And so they drop to their faces because God has just redeemed these people. And they're saying, it's true. Now there's a little break in the story. Verse 13, one of the elders apparently steps away from where he's at at the throne and comes over and talks to John. And so John gets to participate in what's going on. He's no longer an observer. He actually has a conversation. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? This question is used to reveal John's lack of knowledge. He doesn't understand who they are. This word that says answered me, you might want to circle that and write the word addressed me. That's the more accurate Greek interpretation for that. This elder turned to me and addressed me to ask me this question about something that's going on. We saw the 144,000 sealed last week, the witness Jewish, Jewish witnesses. And so as a result of their witnessing, there's fruit that's come about, and these are the fruit of the witness. So he says, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Now, if they were part of the church, the elder would have identified them that way. 
If they were familiar believers from the Old Testament, they would be identified that way. But John doesn't recognize them, so he says, who are they? I don't know. So the elder had to tell John who they were, and that suggests that they're a very distinct, special group of people. Look what he says in verse 14. I said to him, my Lord, small l notice, it's kurios, the word kurios for Lord just means someone who's an authority. My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the ones who come out of. You might want to circle the words come out of. It, in Greek, it's one word. It's a verb, erkomai. And it literally means it's an ongoing process. So we know this is not referring to the rapture of the church, the taking away, because the rapture of the church is instant. A taking away that happens all at once. But this is an ongoing process. So these are the ones who are coming out of. It depicts a prolonged process. So the identity of these believers are someone who's very distinct, someone we haven't seen before. And he says about them that they've washed their robes and made them white. Now you already saw what Lucas white was, brilliant, dazzling white. So he said, I see them and they've washed their robes and made them white. How did they wash them and make them white? In the blood of the lamb. My wife uses Tide. I've never washed anything in blood. Now we understand obviously that that is a very graphic depiction, but we would say, that is pure imagery right out of the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. The sacrificial system that was set up was intended that people would understand that when they sacrificed the animals, when blood was shed, it would cover over the sins, but it could not remove the sins. Only one could do that. And so this elder points him and says, they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. That's what got them spotless. That's what removed all the blemishes. So these individuals we're looking at, clearly, he said, have come out of the tribulation and they're recipients of salvation through Jesus. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham? I will bless all the earth through you, Abraham. You're seeing it fulfilled on a massive scale. It wasn't just those who belonged to the church age. In the midst of the tribulation, such an uncountable number that John just gives up. I don't know. This next scene that's coming is one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Let me explain it to you. Verse 15 wraps it up. For this reason, what reason? He says to him, for this reason, you have to say, well, what's the, what reason? What are you talking about? For this reason, that they are standing before the throne, because they've got the white robes, for this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Day and night, meaning perpetually. Revelation 21 tells us there's no night in heaven. It's always light, kind of like Alaska in July. It's just always light. Okay, so we know that there's no nighttime. What this means is a reference to the Old Testament and it's referring to the perpetual service before God in the temple in which the priest would go in on different shifts and they would serve God in the temple. All day long, 24 hours a day, there was always someone in the temple serving God. So these individuals have this privilege 
to be dressed in these white robes, standing before the throne, day and night, they're worshiping God. And do you notice? They're before the throne of God with no fear whatsoever. They've been fully accepted. They're right into him. And so he does something in response. This is the imagery. It says he will spread his tabernacle over them. What in the world does that mean? Is it like some big tent in heaven? Okay. Let's see the definition for it first. Skenu. This is the definition for the word tabernacle or tent. To tent or encamp, figuratively to occupy as in a mansion, or especially to reside as God did in the tabernacle of old, a symbol to protect, for protection and communion. So when it says he spread his tent over them, we would immediately think of somebody going to the state park and we're going to set up a tent and that's where they dwell, okay? In the Middle East, if you're thinking like someone of Jewish descent, when someone went inside the tabernacle, the tent of another individual, they didn't just come in to eat a meal. They came in under the protection of the owner of that tabernacle. They're dwelling in his midst. Now, there's a very specific way that this skenu, this tabernacle, is used in Scripture. It means the Shekinah glory of God. So when you saw in the Old Testament the Shekinah glory of God descending upon the people of Israel, that was the skenu, the tabernacle, guarding over his people. So this is what Scripture is saying. They're standing before the throne of God and he's encompassing them with his tabernacle. Isn't that beautiful imagery? They're under his protection. Very specifically, this verse was used about Jesus. Look with me up on the screen at John 1.14. It says, John wrote this, the word became flesh and made his skenu among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we understand in looking at this text that never again will these people face torment or torture from the Antichrist. They're under the tabernacle of God. So that's why it goes on to say, because his Shekinah presence is over them, this is how verse 16 ends it. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now why in the world would John start talking about that? That's all earth stuff. Because they have just come from the tribulation. And look what's going on in the tribulation. Look up on the screen at Revelation 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. So these individuals that we're learning about did repent. They recognized who God was. And they've experienced this horror. So John writes about it. They're not going to experience it anymore. They're under the canoe of God. That's all in the past. So he says in verse 17, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When I read that this week again, I thought of that Tom Hanks movie back in the 1990s where he was the coach of a baseball team for women. 
And one of the girls next to the dugout started crying. And Tom said, there's no crying in baseball. What are you doing crying? I'm looking at this person thinking, there's no crying in heaven. Well, specifically, Scripture says, God's going to recognize the incredible pain that these people have dealt with. And not the angels. He personally is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. God and Jesus both attending to the needs. That took me to a passage that my mom made me learn when I was a little kid. I think it's the first verse I ever had to memorize. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Remember that? Psalm 23. That's the picture of the shepherd. He restores my soul. So we see the shepherd taking them to springs of water of life. Do you remember that verse in the beginning today? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things God has in store for us who love him. Powerful imagery. It's our God reminding us. You can't even begin to think of what I've got in store for you. That's what waits for us on the other side. So, yeah, we win, all right? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this imagery, both in communion today and in in Revelation and the literalness of it, that we can actually picture this in our mind. Yet we can't grasp it. We don't know what fully it's like. But thank you so much for moving John to write this down. As a reminder for each of us, we win. And it's not us who do the winning. You did it for us. So we proclaim that in truth. It's because of what Jesus did that we get to be with you. Father, I ask for the men and women in this room, the students, the children, as we move through this week, Remind us of this truth. We're on the winning team. You have won the victory. It's in the name of the one who won the victory that we pray, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.